But we are in our message series this morning on the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order so that we can see the full life of Jesus for ourselves as it really is in the Bible. Not what somebody else says about him, but who Jesus really is. And the four Gospels are made up of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and John were three disciples who actually lived with Jesus during the three years he ministered on the earth. And Luke was a physician and a historian around the same time who wrote his account, his gospel on the life of Jesus as a historical document. And today we're going to be in chapter 21 of the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew. You don't have to agree with what I say today, but I want to encourage you to be a serious seeker of truth. And what it means to be a serious seeker of truth is to be first and foremost concerned with the question, is this true? Not do I like it, not is it what I desire it to be, but is it true? To have that approach and that attitude towards the truth. So if you disagree with what I say, then you're going to need to dig into the Bible for yourself. You're going to need to seek out answers for yourself if you're going to be someone who takes the truth seriously. And I encourage you to be that person because we believe nothing matters more than the truth. We believe Jesus is the truth, came to tell us the truth, and came to show us how to walk and live in the truth. And last week we looked at the events of what's most commonly known as Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on the day he presented himself as Messiah for the first time, the long-awaited Savior of Israel and the world. And we took time to go through and understand the single most amazing prophecy in the Bible, which is Daniel 9.25. And if you missed that, make sure you listen online because it is absolutely incredible how prophecy works in the Bible. It actually proves that the Bible has an author outside of space and time. This week we're gonna be reminded of just how important a role Jesus has given us to play in his work on the earth today. So let's begin in Matthew chapter 21. We'll be in verse 14. This is simply continuing on after the triumphal entry, after coming down the hill into Jerusalem, down the Mount of Olives, during his triumphal entry, Jesus enters the Temple Mount area. And you may remember, the Temple Mount was the largest place of worship in the known world at this time. It wasn't just the temple, it was an area the size of multiple football fields that made up the Temple Mount. And in Matthew 21:14, we read, Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. I mean, after all, who wouldn't be ticked off when the blind are seeing and the lame are being healed? And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Well, as we know, anytime the religious leaders get upset in the Gospels, it's a giant clue for us, the readers, to hone in on what the issue is. Many people will say, well, Jesus never made the claim that he was God, and that's absolutely not true. They haven't read the Bible. But one of the places you can constantly find Jesus accepting praise as God is in the offended state of the religious leaders. Because whenever they get mad, It's generally because Jesus has done something which claims he is God. Or Jesus is accepting the praise from people who are claiming he is God. And in this case, they're referring to Jesus using a messianic term, son of David. In other words, these kids are saying Jesus is the Messiah, that long-awaited savior sent by God to the earth, God in the flesh. 
So even the children are recognizing Jesus is Messiah. But the chief priests and scribes, well, they don't want to hear it. And so they tell Jesus, tell these kids to stop blaspheming. Tell them you're not the Messiah. And Jesus said to them, I love this, have you never read? I love it when Jesus does this because he begins by telling them, don't you read your Bible? Don't you read your Bible? And then he quotes Psalm 8-2, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. He tells the chief priest and the scribe, listen, the praise of these children is perfect. It's on point. They get it. They know who I am. So no, I'm not going to tell them to stop. Verse 17, then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. As was his custom, anytime he was in Jerusalem for a feast, Jesus wouldn't stay in Jerusalem. He would stay two miles outside of the city on the other side of the Mount of Olives in Bethany at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And apparently this time his disciples are staying with him. Well, I'm going to ask you to turn ahead in your Bibles to the next gospel, Mark. This is just the way it falls today as we work through things in chronological order in the order things happened. Mark 11, verse 12. Mark 11, verse 12. And we're going to move things around just to help them make sense in terms of the way they flow together. So we'll begin in verse 12, and it says, Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. He's my kind of Savior. And seeing from afar, underline the word afar, a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. So this was a fig tree on a public road, meaning anyone could eat its fruit. And a fig tree's fruit usually grows with its leaves. And so the idea is, if you see a fig tree in the distance that's covered in leaves, it's supposed to be bearing fruit, figs as well. And it says, but when he came to it, he found underlined nothing but leaves, nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. You see, the season for figs was really more than a month away, but if it was bearing leaves this early, then it should have been bearing fruit as well. Verse 14, in response... Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. And Matthew's gospel tells us that the tree immediately began to wither. A couple of things are going to take place between this moment and the next day. But because we don't have time to cover everything in one message, we'll get through all of it in this series. We're going to skip ahead a little bit to the next day just to pick up on the continuation of this story. So just bump down to verse 20. And we read, now in the morning, the next day, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. This is seemingly a very, very strange tale. Does Jesus hate vegetarians? Well, we'll we'll never know. No, that's not what's going on here. As is often the case, the scriptures decode themselves for us. So the obvious question here is, what is the deal with this fig tree? Well, the fig tree is often used in the Old Testament as a type of Israel. When something is a type of something else, it is perhaps a metaphor or some form of it. And in this case, the fig tree appears multiple times in the Old Testament as a type of Israel, political Israel specifically. You have the olive tree, it speaks of Israel ethnically, genealogically. The fig tree speaks of them in the political sense and the vine speaks of them in the spiritual 
sense, and that's how it works. So Jesus is using this fig tree as a metaphor for political Israel, which really means the leadership of Israel, which as you may know, was a blend of political and religious leadership. The religious leaders controlled political life as well under the Roman Empire. So make a note of this, the fig tree is an Old Testament type of political Israel. The fig tree is an Old Testament type of political Israel. So what Jesus does with this literal fig tree, which represents political Israel, is judge and condemn it for not providing what its appearance promised. You see, this tree had a misleading appearance that suggested great fruitfulness without actually providing it. He's using the fig tree as a divine object lesson concerning Israel's spiritual hypocrisy and fruitlessness. As you may know, at the very beginning when God chose Israel to be his people, he said, I'm not choosing you because you're amazing, because you're brilliant, because you're the best. I'm choosing you because you're the least among the peoples of the earth. And he chose Israel to be a vessel for his glory. Their job was to tell the world about the glory of God and invite them to be a part of the family of God. But that's not what happened. They turned completely inward as we've shared before, and got all the way to the point where they decided by this time, if you weren't Jewish, the reason God had created you was as kindling for the fires of hell, to keep the fires of hell hot. And so Jesus is judging political Israel. He's saying, listen, you've got all the appearance of fruitfulness. You've got the temple. We're all here for Passover. There's millions of people in Jerusalem. All this activity around our Jewish faith, but there's no fruit. You're not actually doing anything. There's nothing really going on. There's just the appearance of things going on. Just last week, we heard Jesus speak judgment over Israel, weeping over Israel for their failure to recognize and receive him during his time on the earth. And sure enough, we learned that Israel was indeed condemned just like the fig tree to wither away for a season. For just 38 years later, Rome would obliterate Jerusalem, slaughter hundreds of thousands of Jews, kick them out of the land of Israel, and scatter them across the earth as they fled for their lives in the movement known as the Diaspora. All happened in 70 AD. So this cursing of the fig tree wasn't some impetuous or impulsive act by Jesus done out of frustration. It was intentional. It was purposeful to make a specific divine point. And in fact, to further illustrate this point, let me read you something we've already studied before, the parable of the barren fig tree. This was a parable shared by Jesus that's recorded in Luke 13. I think I put it on your outlines. It says, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. You see, it's all there. Israel is the fig tree and the judging of that fig tree for failing to produce the fruit it should have. But what's so interesting about that parable is the timeline. The tree in that parable hasn't borne fruit for three years, the exact length of Jesus' ministry. The logical conclusion is that the tree is useless. But what does the parable tell us? Well, it says the Lord doesn't destroy the tree. He fertilizes it. He fertilizes it. And how do you fertilize anything in the first century AD? It's only one way. Manure, poop, doo-doo. 
And so you see, the future of Israel is laid out for us in the scriptures so that we can know God's plan to bring Israel back to him is that ultimately they're going to go through some serious doo-doo in the future, which is ultimately going to result in them bearing the fruit they should have been bearing all along. They're going to have the whole world turn against them in the great tribulation, those three and a half years known in the Bible as the time of Jacob's trouble. But out of that time, out of that crushing, out of that persecution, they're gonna recognize Jesus as Messiah and turn back to him. But now we go back to the disciples who, of course, are not at all tuned in to the symbolism of what Jesus has just done. They're just marveling at the fact that he told a tree never to bear fruit again and it begins withering away. And I love that Jesus doesn't groan and go, "Ah, you idiots, it's a freaking metaphor. Read your Bible. He just simply uses it as an opportunity to teach about faith. Verse 22, it says, so Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. It's just a gentle rebuke from Jesus as if to say, you were there when I calmed the sea of Galilee with a word from my mouth. You were there when I called Lazarus forth from the grave with a word from my mouth. Haven't you figured it out yet? When I say something, it's done. It happens. And when I was writing down my notes, I just made a note here. I said, you know, somebody needs to hear that word today. Somebody's here today just to hear that one thing, that when God says something will be done, it'll be done. The end. And somebody needs to hear that. If that's for you, you hold on to that, and God's word for you is just what Jesus says here in verse 22. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Verse 23. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Oh man. Oh man. As you may know, this is one of the most abused verses in the Bible. If you are in a country where preachers are allowed on TV, somewhere there's a preacher on TV using this verse to tell you it's the key to you getting that new car that you want, that house that you want, that hot spouse that you want, whatever it is that you're looking for, and he's saying just put your hand on the TV and believe with me and send a free will offering to my ministry, Deacon Jones right here at P.O. Box 123, and the God is going to move through your faith. I did that just so you'd know I could do that if I wanted to, but I don't. So because we're all sinners, the part of that verse we're all immediately drawn to is he will have whatever he says, right? That's where all of our attention goes. But the point Jesus is making is that when faith is functioning at its highest level, literally anything is possible. And even as I say that, some of you are getting nervous and you're like, this is the part where he asks us to give money. It's part of a faith offering. And I want you to know we've already locked the doors and I'm gonna ask the band to come up right now and no, we're not not gonna do that, don't worry. Because I want you to notice that Jesus says the person who has mountain moving faith doesn't doubt in his heart. And then Jesus goes on to describe the opposite of doubt, which is faith saying, but believes that those things he says will be done. So let's make this real clear. Jesus is saying to move a mountain, you must not doubt and must have faith. And here's where we get this wrong. People go, oh, I'm just going to choose to have faith. But faith is not a switch that you flick to just use it whenever you want, to get whatever you want. Faith is built and accumulated over time, 
over years of saying yes to God every time he asks you to. Faith is built by saying yes to God with simple things and continuing to say yes when he asks you to trust him with more and more and more and more. I've shared this before. One of the most painful parts of being a pastor is knowing a believer who has said no to God over and over and over again, and then a crisis hits their life, they get cancer, and they claim they have the faith to believe God's gonna heal them, and I know, no, you don't, because you've spent a lifetime saying no to God, and now you wanna believe you have the faith to have your cancer healed, but the truth is your whole life says you don't trust God, and now when the crisis has hit, you don't have mountain-moving faith, You've got almost none. Faith isn't a switch that we flick. In fact, the Bible says we get faith how? The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you don't have that memorized, memorize that. Romans 10, 12. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes. Faith is acquired. It is built by hearing, taking in, receiving the word of God and then believing the word of God. What does believing look like? Well, it means acting upon it. It means that if God says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, you just agree with it. You don't have to ask him to do it. You just agree with it. That's who he is and you thank him for it. So if you can only acquire mountain-moving faith through hearing the word of God, believing and receiving the word of God, then it stands to reason that you can only acquire mountain-moving faith to accomplish things that line up with the Word of God. If faith comes from hearing the Word, then it's gonna be faith for the things of the Word. And if you still don't get it, remember what Ephesians 2.8 tells us about our salvation. It's on your outlines. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And what about that faith? Well, not of yourselves. It is the gift from God. The Bible says even the faith that we have to believe in God is a gift given to us by God. And so when you put it all together, it's real simple. Faith comes from hearing the word of God, believing it, and taking it in. And God is only going to give you that faith to accomplish the things that line up with his will. So the person who says, well, I've got faith that God is going to give me my dream house, 21 bedrooms, West Vancouver. Here's the problem. The faith you need to actually make that happen has to be given to you by God. And God is only going to give you the faith to do the things that line up with his word and help accomplish his purposes. That's what the Bible means when it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. It's saying the more you get in tune with God, the more God is your source of joy and strength, the more you delight yourself in the Lord, the more you're gonna want the same things that God wants. And when you and God are in harmony, now mountains can begin to move because it's not just about your faith, but it's about the power of God flowing through your life. So I'm sorry if your plan for a new house was to just walk up, put a hand on it, and claim it in the name of Jesus, but it doesn't work that way. It's not possible. So make a note of this. Mountain-moving faith comes from God's word and will always be for purposes that line up with God's word. With God's word. Comes from God's word and will always be for purposes that line up with God's word. But listen to me, brother. Listen to me, sister. Mountain-moving faith for the things 
that line up with the word of God. There may be a situation in your life that seems impossible. There may be a child who seems so far from God they're never coming back. There may be a marital relationship that seems irreparable. Can I tell you that God desires to see healing in your marriage? Can I tell you I know that God desires your children to know him? And it doesn't matter what mountains need to move to make that happen. It is possible. It is possible through God. So if you're in that place and it just seems impossible, I want you to know Jesus says it's not. It's not. You've got one job. God would say, get into my word so you know what it says. And then you hold on and believe the promises that are in my word. He says, you watch what will happen. You'll turn around one day and a mountain has moved because you're praying in alignment with the will of God. Hold on. If that's you, you keep believing. You keep praying. Verse 24, Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe, underline believe, that you receive them, underline receive, and you will have them. This is why we believe in thanking the Lord for answered prayers before the answer even arrives. You need a job. Can I tell you that God believes it's good to work? God wants you to have a job if you're unemployed. So thank him that he's already working to provide that for you. If your marriage needs help, thank him in advance that he's actively healing your marriage. And that moment of full restoration is coming. Why do we do this? Well, because it builds our faith. Have you noticed how often we ask God for things that he's already promised us? I'll never leave you nor forsake you. God, please be with me. God's like, I've already covered that. I said I'd be with you to the end of the age. Stop asking me. He's already made up his mind. He knows what we have need of before we even ask. He'll provide for us. But we need to pray in faith. We need to thank him in advance because we need to be reminded of who God is. He's not the one who's forgetful. We're the ones who are forgetful. Whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you'll have them. If you know that you're praying for something that's in the will of God, start thanking him now for the answer. Start thanking him now for the answer to that prayer. And if you're not praying that way, change. For real, you'll be astounded by what it'll do for your faith. So make a note of this. Faith thanks the Lord in advance for honoring the promises of his word. Faith thanks the Lord in advance for honoring the promises of his word. You know, after the Lord parted the Red Sea, brought the people of Israel through and then closed it on the Egyptians who were chasing them, wiping out the Egyptian army, all the Israelites sang this great song of thanks, the song of Moses. They sang it on the other side of the Red Sea about how God had delivered them and saved them and about how great it was. And that's cool. That's a good thing. But you know where that song really would have meant something? When they were still on the other side. When they were busy complaining, saying to Moses, did you bring us out here to die? Man, would that song have meant something if before God had even moved, they began thanking him that he's with them, that he's for them, that he's on their side. There's something about that I'm telling you too that I think God hears that and he's like, well, I gotta show up now or I'm gonna look bad. You begin thanking God and declaring the faithfulness of God 
Man, that's faith building. That's when faith means something. Well, I don't know, Jeff. Sounds a little too Pentecostal for me. A little bit too name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. So think about this. We all do this with heaven, right? We all do this with heaven. We sing songs about heaven. Are we there yet? We're not there yet. We read books about heaven. We thank God for heaven. We long for heaven. None of us are there yet. And I believe the Lord would say to you and I, if you can trust me that you'll be in heaven after you die, if you can thank me now for heaven that's coming later, can you have that same faith for the day-to-day stuff as well? Can you thank me now for providing for you for tomorrow? Can you believe that I'm going to honor my word in the details as much as I am with heaven? And the man or woman of God says, yes, I can. Yes, I can, Lord. Verse 25, and, underline the word and, because it connects what Jesus is about to say to everything he's just said. So connected to the necessity of faith in prayer, connected to that, Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, which was the traditional Jewish posture of prayer, if you have, and underline this horrible phrase, anything against anyone, how horrifically all-inclusive is that phrase? Anything against anyone. This is talking about people who have sinned against you and wronged you. This is also talking about people that you just don't like. You don't get along with. You have something against. When I say their name, you go, I don't like that guy. And it's talking about believers and non-believers. If you have anything against anyone, and then underline what Jesus says next, forgive him. Forgive him. This is not a choose your own adventure command. My kids love those books. You open it up, there's a description of the problem. You can choose like one of three solutions and turn to a different page. This is not that. Jesus says if you've got anything against anyone, forgive him. You can look as close as you want. There's no asterisk in your Bible with tiny fine print that says, unless you really don't want to and they're a real jerk who did something real bad. There's no asterisk. Just forgive him. And isn't it interesting that we love to talk about faith. And faith is incredibly important. It's the currency of the kingdom. But I don't see as many of us talking about, posting about, conversing about, drinking from coffee cups that talk about the reality that Jesus has just connected faith and forgiveness to effective prayer. In other words, you can have all the faith in the world when you come to pray, but if you come before the Lord in prayer holding something against someone and refusing to forgive them, the effectiveness of your prayers are gonna be limited. So make a note of this. The believer must release faith and forgiveness in order to pray effectively. Faith and forgiveness in order to pray effectively. And as Jesus is so good at doing, he once again anticipates our objections. But you don't know what they did to me. There's no way I can be expected to let that go. They don't deserve forgiveness. Why are you telling me that I have to forgive? They're the bad guy. So Jesus says to you and I, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, Neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. 
So clearly the Lord takes forgiveness seriously. How seriously? Well, he died to get it for us. And he wants us to know that when he says forgive others, he means it. He really expects us to do this. He says if you need motivation, just remember how much you need forgiveness. Just remember how much I paid to get it for you. It's one of the reasons he has us take communion every time we get together. He says, just remember, as you're taking my body and, and my blood, remember, that's what it costs for you to be forgiven. So whatever you need to forgive someone else for, let's put this in perspective. And the perspective is the price Jesus paid to acquire our forgiveness. Now let's make sure we're clear about what the Bible is saying because this verse can throw some of us off because we know from the totality of Scripture, that means when we look at everything the Bible says about salvation, we know that if we believe in Jesus for our salvation, we're saved, we're forgiven. And it's really easy to make mistakes in interpreting the Bible when you take one verse and you just build a whole theology on one verse instead of looking at everything the Bible says about it. None of us are gonna end up in hell because the Lord says, Hey, turns out you never forgave that one guy who cut in front of you in traffic that one day, so uh, I never forgave you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. That's, that's not what we're talking about. As I was studying for this, I couldn't find one message or one commentator who actually tried to explain it, what it's actually saying. They just skipped over it. So I'll share my own thoughts, and you can come to your own conclusions, agree or disagree, but the original Greek word that's used there for forgive has a whole broad sense of meanings. It can also mean let go of, to keep no longer, to go away from one. I put some of the definitions on your outlines and I think that provides a better definition of what we're talking about here. It's not that if you don't forgive others, you're gonna go to hell or you're not saved anymore in that sense, in, in the legal sense of sins and forgiveness. I think what it's talking about is that when we're forgiven, God's desire for us is that we would be forgiven and released. We know we're not released from consequences, but through the grace of God, we can be released from shame and from guilt and from even that thing coming up over and over in our minds to condemn us over and over again. And I would say that my personal belief is that what the Lord is saying is, hey, if you won't forgive other people, yeah, you're still saved, but God is saying, I will not provide for you the healing from that guilt and that shame and that condemnation that you feel if you will not release the other person from it. You're gonna go to heaven, you're gonna be fine, but you're not gonna find that healing, that release, if you refuse to release others. It's just not gonna happen. And so with that in mind, I would just challenge you that if you've confessed a sin to the Lord and you've asked for forgiveness, but you're just struggling with feeling forgiven, feeling released. This is a place that I would start. I would start by asking, is there someone that you are refusing to forgive, that you are refusing to release from the very things you long to have the Lord release you from? In your mind, is there still guilt on that person, shame on that person, condemnation on that person? If there is, then there may very well still be that on you. And you need to release it so that God can heal you from that. 
Now let's go back down. I know we're going out of order, but go back down to verse 15. It says, so they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple. Again, that massive area known as the Temple Mount. And he's going into the big area known now as the Court of the Gentiles. The Court of the Gentiles was the closest you could get to the Holy of Holies, where they believed the presence of God was at this time. If you were not Jewish, this is as close as you could get. And in the court of the Gentiles would be men selling animals that could be used for temple sacrifices because you were coming to town, coming to Jerusalem, to the big temple on Passover, you were supposed to offer a sacrifice. But the whole thing is a racket spearheaded by the temple priests because you would show up with your animal that you had brought with you ready to sacrifice for Passover. And you would have checked to make sure that it met the requirements of the law, which were that it be an animal without blemish or defect. Can't have a broken leg or three eyes or anything like that. So however, when you get to the temple, a priest would need to inspect your animal. And here's what would happen. The racket kicks in. They would make sure that they found some kind of blemish or defect with your animal. Or they would even say, well, I know it doesn't look like there's one, but I can see his one leg is growing a little faster than the other. And so in a few months, there's going to be a defect, and I can't approve this as a clean animal ready for sacrifice right now. And you'd be stuck in the position of saying, well, what am I going to do? Home is days and days away. I don't have time to go and get another animal, and Passover's gonna be over before I get back. Or perhaps you came from such a great distance, you couldn't even bring an animal with you, and your plan was just to buy one in Jerusalem. But either way, the priest would answer, well, you are in luck. Because we care about our fellow Jews so much, we have arranged for the sale of pre-approved sacrificial animals right here in the court of the Gentiles. You can just buy one of these. And guess what? They would be for sale at radically marked up prices, sometimes as high as 15 times more than the going rate for that animal. Why? Well, because like buying lunch at Disney World, you've got no other option. And on top of that, you would need to make an annual money offering of half a shekel. But you couldn't pay with a Greek or Roman coin because they had the heads of men on them, like the head of Caesar or one of the Herods. And that was considered idolatrous, a form of idolatry. So you would need to exchange your Greek or Roman currency for Jewish or Tyrian currency. And fortunately, money changers were available right there in the court of the Gentiles too, who would change your currency for you at a highly unfavorable rate, making about a 25% profit. And the priests and the merchants would work together in this racket to get rich by ripping off people who came to worship God. So imagine that you're a Greek or a Roman at this time and you hear about the God of the Jews. You hear about the incredible things he's done. You hear this is the real God. And you go to see the temple because in the ancient world at that time, the temple of a God was a commentary and a reflection of the greatness of that God. And you go to Jerusalem because you've heard that it's the most splendorous temple in the world. And you go there, but what do you find? Well, you find that the Jews don't really want anything to do with you. They don't want you there, but they will take your money. And you go into this place and you're told this is as far as you can go to worship. But surrounding you are animals making loud noises, money changers calling out exchange rates. People traveling back and forth carrying their merchandise, using the court area as a shortcut. And if you came to seek the Lord, you'd leave frustrated and angry saying, well, well, clearly all they really want is my money. There's nothing sacred going on here. 
And that's how God was being portrayed to people who would come to seek him at his temple. Unsurprisingly, this makes Jesus righteously angry. About three years ago, he had already gone into the temple once before and turned over the tables of the merchants there. And he's just days away from his death now. So imagine the feeling of righteous anger in him as he gets ready to lay down his life for the world. And in his house, this is going on. Jesus is angry for good reason. It says, then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. This is the Jesus that doesn't make it into a lot of children's Bibles. who just walks up to a table and just throws the whole table, sending money everywhere. And this specific point is mentioned here about the doves because a dove was the typical sacrifice of the poor. If you couldn't afford a sheep, you would be able to offer a dove because it was more affordable. And so the point is these rip-off artists had no conscience. They were willing to rip off the poorest of the poor who were coming to worship God. But did you notice that Jesus doesn't turn over the table with the doves on it? He doesn't do that because they're helpless. He's not gonna kill a bunch of doves. So he leaves them alone and turns over the chairs of those who were selling them. Verse 16, and he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. So as I just mentioned, what they were doing is merchants who were selling stuff all over Jerusalem were using the temple mount as a shortcut to get from one side of Jerusalem to the other. I'm not gonna walk around it, I'm just gonna walk straight through it. And Jesus felt that this is a shocking lack of reverence for the sanctity of the temple. It's not a shortcut, it's a place to worship God. And then he taught, verse 17, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. So he explains what he's doing by sharing two Old Testament scriptures, Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11. But Jesus is so angry because the court of the Gentiles is meant to be a space for non-Jews to join in the worship of God, to come and check out who this God is, what it's all about. And instead of seeing that as important, the Jews just saw it as open real estate that they could use to turn a profit. Turn it into the complete opposite of a worshipful environment. And so Jesus tells them, my house is meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. And don't miss the seriousness and the intensity of the accusation that Jesus levels against the priesthood at this time. He literally calls the priests and the Pharisees thieves who are hiding out in the temple the way that bandits would go and hide in a cave. Verse 18, and the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching, underlying teaching. So once again, while Jesus is doing this, nobody actually tries to arrest him. Nobody tries to stop him because there's just something about him as he tears up the court of the Gentiles in righteous anger. There's something about him that people look on and recognize. You see, they can tell that he's right. They can tell he has the authority to do this and so nobody stops him. And the Jewish religious leaders hear what's going on and they just keep their own conversation going of how are we gonna stop him? How are we going to arrest him when all these people know there's something special about him? But notice this though. Once Jesus was done clearing the temple, he began teaching in the temple. You see, apparently things had to be cleared out. Distractions had to be removed. 
before Jesus could begin teaching. And he could have taught with all the animals making noise, the merchants bustling back and forth, the money changers yelling out exchange rates, but, but Jesus chose to say no. The word of God is not to be taught in a circus or some kind of sideshow. When the word is taught, it needs to be the focus. And so Jesus clears out those distractions and makes sure that people can focus on what he has to say. And we need this reminder in our ADD media age. You know, we so often think that the key to hearing from God is doing more. I need to read more books. I need to watch more video devotionals. I need to do more, more, more. I need to go to more services. I need to go to more groups. I need to do more, 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 more. And sometimes what's needed is less of everything else. Just put the phone down. Turn the music off. Turn the TV off. Stop multitasking. Stop listening to a message while you're looking at Facebook on your phone. Create a little bit of distraction-free time to open God's word and hear from him. Quality trumps quantity when it comes to time with the Lord. Why? Because time with the Lord is a relationship with the Lord. A relationship with the Lord. And I don't know how you're wired, but I know my wife would rather have 20 minutes of focused conversation with me than three hours with me while I'm on my phone. Quality over quantity. Sometimes what's really needed is less of everything else. So there's just some room for us to hear from God. That's one of the reasons this time is so precious. It's so precious for all of us as believers because in the middle of our busy lives and all the things going on, this is time just in our week to just say, hey, we're, we're just here to hear from God and from his word, to see Jesus, to sing his praises with relatively few distractions. I mean, I know my head is shiny, but relatively few distractions. So make a note of this. Jesus removed the distractions before he began to teach. He removed the distractions before he began to teach. And I want to suggest to you the reason that nobody stops Jesus, not the temple guards, not anybody, is because even though they didn't realize it, the authority that Jesus has in the temple came from the fact that it was his temple. It was his temple. You talk about someone walking in and acting like they own the place. He did. He had the authority to go in and say, this is not how things should be. How do you know? Because it's my house. And I pray that we would have the same attitude when it comes to his church, specifically this church. That's why here at New Hope, we really believe that the biggest question about how we do church should not be what do people want or what kind of experience are people looking for or what's going on in culture, but simply what does Jesus want his church to look like? How does he want things done? We're not really trying to impress anybody else. We're not really looking to hear a good job from anybody else. It's the house of God. It needs to be the way he wants it to be. We're not perfect, we're nowhere close. But I want you to know that's our goal here at this church. We're doing our best to, to run God's house the way he has said he wants it run. If we're believers, if we're disciples of Jesus, then here's the deal that we've made. Let me read to you what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. It's on your outlines. 
He said, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own, for you were bought at a price. What price is he talking about? He's talking about the body and blood of Jesus. Don't let anybody ever tell you salvation's free. It's the costliest purchase ever made in eternity. It cost the life of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And he bought you. He paid a, a price for you. And what the Apostle Paul is telling us is he's saying, we don't belong to ourselves. It's my life. No, it's not. It's not. I have rights. No, you, no, you don't. You belong to Jesus. The Lord owns us. We are his property and we're thrilled to be his property. That means Jesus has the authority to come into our lives, his property, and make changes as he deems necessary and sees fit. It means Jesus has the authority to come into our lives and say, this has got to change. And we don't get to go, uh, you're trespassing. Jesus says, no, I'm on my property. You were bought with a price. And when we allow things in our lives that make it harder for other people to see who God is, he's going to want to step in and fix that. Just as Jesus was not okay with money changers, merchants, and rip-off artists setting up shop in the temple, making it hard for the seeker to really see God through all of that mess, so too Jesus is not okay with us allowing things into our lives, allowing wickedness to set up shop in our lives to cover up, obscure, and conceal the glory of God in our lives. Make a note of this. This is huge. For you see, Jesus didn't have the church build a new temple because he chose to make us his temple. He didn't have the church build a new temple. He doesn't have us journey to Jerusalem to go worship at the temple because he chose to make us individually his temple. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. We're supposed to reflect the glory of God. We're supposed to help the seeker see what God looks like by the way we live. We're supposed to help the curious person who desires to know God. We're supposed to carry the very presence of God, the Holy of Holies within us, the Holy Spirit within us. And if we belong to God, then we have to recognize his right to come into our lives and say, this is not what I want in my temple, this has to go. But you know, God is so gracious. He never shows up out of the blue Mentioning something for the first time, turning over tables in our lives. He doesn't show up without ever mentioning it before and just ah, go crazy and be like, I hate this, get this out. He doesn't do that. You see, he allows us to hear his word one way or another and the Holy Spirit will nudge us and say, hey, we need to do something about this. Here it is in his word. This is not what he wants in your life. And then he continues to speak to you as you inevitably delay your obedience and meditate on the issue. And then the Lord seems to bring people into your life across your path 
to keep bringing up the subject, even though they don't realize they're doing it. God addresses all your questions and concerns one way or another, and, and then if we don't listen, he keeps turning up the volume. You find yourself in church sweating because you think the pastor somehow knows exactly what's going on in your life, and you're thinking, why would he write a whole sermon just about me? Because it seems like it's coming right at you. And it will just seem like the issue keeps coming up over and over and over and over again. And if we keep resisting him, eventually table-turning Jesus shows up. And that secret sin is somehow brought into the light because we refuse to deal with it. That sinful relationship explodes and falls apart. That cheating on your schoolwork or your job gets found out and there's dust and chaos everywhere and we're thinking, what's going on? Jesus is turning over tables. That's what's going on. We wouldn't listen the first hundred times he mentioned it. And now he's turning over tables because he's saying, you're the temple. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're to represent the glory of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God. And I can't tolerate this in your life. But we wouldn't listen to the message, to the teaching, to the word, to the counsel of other believers, to the Holy Spirit, and on and on we could go about all the people God sent into our lives to warn us about this. And so Jesus shows up and he means business and he has every right to mean business. Do you know what the better way is? There's a much better way. Simply choosing to obey his word when you realize your life doesn't line up with it. That's such a better way to do things. There's so much blessing, so much saved heartache and anguish and fallout in simply trusting the word of God rather than fighting the word of God. God's never gonna be proven to be a liar. If the Lord says that relationship is sinful and not right and you need to stop, that story's not gonna have a happy ending because God will not be proven to be a liar. So much better to just say, God, bring my life in alignment with your word now. And never forget that everything Jesus does in our lives is ultimately for our benefit. It's for our good. Even when he's bringing discipline into our lives, even when he's turning over tables, it's not because he's finally reached the snapping point and he's so angry and he wants you to know he's angry. It's still for our good. In Proverbs 3, I put it on your outlines, we read, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. Even when God is turning over tables in your life, it's, it's for your own good. If that thing had stayed, it would have brought destruction into your life, into that relationship, into that area of your life. And turning over tables is sometimes the kindest thing that God can do. Lastly, remember how we read that Jesus had to clear all the junk from the temple before he could start teaching. And remember how we read that the people were astonished at his teaching. There seems to be a connection. And if you haven't had a passion for the word of God for a while, if you haven't been astonished by the teachings of Jesus for a while now, might I suggest that a good place to start is by asking if you've allowed something to set up shop in your life that has no business being there. If you've allowed 
something in your temple that shouldn't be there. Because I bet you'll find that once you clear that thing out of your life, once you allow Jesus to turn that table over, once you get rid of that distraction, you're gonna find that hunger for the word returning once again. It's one of those things where we love to tell ourselves, no, that's not it. But it's almost always it. You meet someone and they're just feeling down all the time or disconnected from God or no passion for the word and you ask, well, you know, is there anything going on in your life that shouldn't be there? What we really think in our head is we're like, yeah, but that's not it. Uh, That's always it. It's almost always it. So with that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And for all of us here this morning, I really want to challenge us with those questions. If you're in the place where you just don't have a, a hunger for the word, is there something you've allowed to set up shop in your life that you know shouldn't be there? Is it an attitude or a relationship, a secret sin? And it's just choking the word of God in your life. If that's you, I want to encourage you to repent of that this morning. Release it to the Lord. Ask him for forgiveness. Experience his forgiveness. And then just allow him to bring that freedom, that healing, that release, that wholeness that only he can bring. Allow him to do that. And then also, for all of us, just what a reminder that we are to be the temple of God. And if you're in the place where maybe you're thinking, God, you don't have the right to come into my life and ask me to give that up. It's my life. Lord, I do so much for you in all these other areas. Why can't you just leave that alone? Would you just take a step back and just say, God, I'm I'm sorry for forgetting who I am and who you are. You're my God. You're my Savior. You're the one who owns me. I I was bought at a price. An incomparable, inconceivable price. And so, Lord, I belong to you. So you come in. Come into your temple. And if there's anything in there that is not as it should be, not as you desire it to be, then, Lord, shine a light on it. And I'll get rid of it. It's got to go. Because it's your house. It's your temple. I belong to you, Jesus. And just as we say that, if the Holy Spirit is just illuminating something in your life, just allow him to continue doing that. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, 
I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.